Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. Each and every time we're confronted with the humanity of what's left behind after a violent crime. And that's not something always a crime reporter is so immersed with for so long. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. Adrian Humphreys has been covering crime for a long time. He was one of the first journalists the National Post hired back when the paper launched in 1998. And he's been covering crime ever since. Over the years, he's developed a particular fascination with organized crime. He's written three bestsellers about the mob. But when I asked Adrian which story has stayed with him after 25 years on the crime beat, it wasn't a mob story at all. Tim Bosma was a loving husband and father and a cherished member of his Hamilton community. In May 2013, he met up with two men who wanted to buy a truck that he'd posted for sale online. The three of them went out for a test drive. Tim never came back. Tim Bosma was part of a, of a, a large and, and supportive and loving community. Um, he was uh, involved in the, the local church, he had a, a friend group, um, and they were very close and very dedicated. And they knew it was foul play from the start. And they jumped out of the blocks with a well-organized, very public campaign. You could not drive anywhere within 50 miles of, of the, their home without seeing a missing poster. They did uh, very emotional media interviews begging for his return. Charlene Bosma's appeals... Uh, for her husband, was a big part of, of the magnetism that was drawn to this case. A beautiful two-year-old girl at home who now needs her mummy more than ever and needs her mummy to hold it together so I know that I cannot fall apart. She embodied the victim uh, and, and the perfect victim. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. They had a two-year-old child at home the emotional toll was so patently obvious. It hung in her voice. You could see it in her eyes, the terror in her eyes. She forced herself to be in the public's eye at that most vulnerable time because she knew or hoped that it would help her husband. But I am broken. Because part of me is gone. Tim will always be loved and he will always be remembered. When she appeared at these press conferences, it sometimes felt like she was dragging concrete blocks up behind her, like she was so reluctant to really go there. And, and she tried her best to sort of take control of the situation uh, that she was in. Um, and she had no control, of course, over what was happening to Tim. So tell me... How long was Tim Bosma missing before they found him? Yeah, the tragedy, of course, of this case is they didn't really find Tim's body. They found small parts of Tim Bosma's body. 
I have been angry at times, and I have cried. I have cried because our little girl won't remember the sound of her daddy's voice. I have cried because she won't remember the feel of her father's arms around her when he held her. I have cried because the life that Tim and I shared was supposed to be our happy ending. Eventually, two young men were charged with his murder. Two search warrants in Waterloo Region are being executed on properties owned by the accused Millard. Police are concentrating their efforts to identify the other suspects involved in this crime. Dellen Millard will be charged with first-degree murder. Suspect number two. Today, the Hamilton Police Service arrested Mark Smitch. 25 years of Oakville, Ontario. Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch, charged with the same crime, but they couldn't have been more different. Mark Smitch was very much more what people were expecting the killer to be. You know, the, the cliches that I think a lot of, you know, middle Canadians sort of imagine. Now, Dellen Millard was sort of the opposite of that. He came from a very uh, a wealthy, sort of famous, swashbuckling aviation dynasty. He um, he, he was very wealthy. Uh, he was well educated. Went to elite schools. Um, he was uh, you know uh, tall and good looking, and, and and lived this sort of uh, wealthy playboy existence. And I I think the disparity between both this pair, but also the disparity with what uh, the image of of a, of a killer would be. I think really sort of caused a lot of people in Canada to sort of pause and puzzle about this guy who seemed like the kind of guy you might, you know, know from your neighborhood or admire from school. I remember being struck by how Millard's lawyer described his client. My client is a, a very humble person. He's not uh, uh, somebody who's cocky or arrogant or, or, or one of these rich brat kids. I would not describe him like that at all. The family's been involved in charitable uh, organizations and so forth. So this is definitely a person, uh, this type of crime is completely out of character. His grandfather was the founder of an aviation company, and Millard was something of a pilot prodigy, a well-heeled heir to a business dynasty. You start to have an image of, of a, you know, a, a prep boy, a preppy kid. But when I spoke to his schoolmates, uh, he... He was disconnected from that world as well. Although his family had money, they didn't show it. He was dropped off at school by his dad in, a, in an old pickup truck. And I imagine most of his classmates were arriving, uh, you know, in, in, in Bentleys or at least in much nicer cars. One guy said, I didn't even know they were rich. The other thing was he had definite personality quirks. So one of the most striking stories uh, and odd stories was that his classmates said that he would walk around school carrying a box of dog biscuits. And he'd reach into the box and he'd rustle around and he'd pull out a bone cookie. And then he would sort of put it in his mouth and chew it and start. And he goes, mmm, they're good. So this clearly has this outsider uh, attention device, likes to get people um, mad or angry or, 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 or weird them out. Police had their eye on Dylan Millard even before they discovered Tim's remains on his property. 
If Dallin Millard had been more careful, he probably would have got away with it. So what did police see? Where were those little uh, mistakes that Millard made? Dallin Millard needed a truck. And instead of buying one, even though he had the money for it, he was bound and determined to steal one. He went online with ads through Kijiji and Auto Trader to find people selling the truck that he wanted. He found three trucks on, on sale. Uh, one, they didn't show up for the test drive for whatever reason. The second one, it was a, a male who went out on their test drive, and as they were on the test drive, they were talking about, you know, mechanics and, and fixing it, and the guy happened to mention that he learned how to fix truck when he was in the Israeli army. And, uh, and, and Millard and Smitch suddenly, oh, well, you know, <laughs> he's a soldier. You know, maybe this might not be the easiest victim. And, uh, and uh, they sort of said, what did, you, what did you do in the army? His name was Igor, and he says, you don't want to know what I had to do. And so they chickened out, and they went on to their third truck to try, and that was the truck of Tim Bosma. Now, once police realized this, they ended up finding Tim Bosma's phone. They started to trace some of the connection he had with someone trying to buy the truck. They pinned it to this test drive, and Igor told police that the driver of the truck had a tattoo on his wrist that said, ambition, the single word, ambition. So then police, they had a, a pretty solid lead. Does anyone know of someone might be capable of murder, fits this description, who has ambition as a tattoo. And hits started to come in and, and links to Dellen Millard, and that's when he became a suspect. And tell me about the friendship between him and Mark Smitch, who ended up being the guy that he was yeah. with in the truck. Smitch is a couple of years younger than Dellen Millard. At the time of Bosma's murder, there were, Smitch was 25 and Millard was 27. They'd had been friends for a number of years beforehand, and Millard didn't seem to like Smitch much when they first met, but they eventually grew very close. Smitch thought of Millard as the older brother he never had, and Millard, I think, he began to really appreciate this adoration. I've read thousands of their text messages. They constantly refer to each other as brothers, my bro, and other familiar terms of affection. Um, they often told each other, I love you. I love you, bro. I love you, too. It, it, it really was this uh, this partnership, but it was it wasn't an equal partnership. Millard was was the boss, and and Smitch was his sidekick. Uh, Millard loved having a sidekick. They were worlds apart socioeconomically and educationally. Um, Smitch str struggled in school. Smitch had very much been in trouble with the law. He'd been uh, dinged for mischief. He'd been painting graffiti. He wanted to be a, a rapper. His rap name was Say Ten. S-A-Y-Say, -say, and then the number 10 for obviously a uh, demonic reference. He would spray paint this around. He was a struggling rapper. And of course, Millard with the money, he, you know, he was always looking to do something uh, outsized. He, he was going to set up a recording studio. He was going to set up a recording label. He was going to release uh, uh, Smitch's rap music. Smitch was also sort of reliant on Millard for his musical career as well. It really was a dependency. So what was the theory from police about why they had killed Tim? You know, the why was never thoroughly answered. 
I mean, clearly they needed the truck, but it, it, it obviously didn't require a murder to take the truck. They could have done the test drive and then said, I'll think about it and get back to you and gone back and stolen it. Or they could have just said, you know, get out, we're taking the truck. Or they could have just bought it off the guy. I mean, it wasn't a great expensive vehicle. So clearly there is an element of thrill kill. This might be the most accurate theory. And it's one that became even more plausible when police started looking into Dellen Millard's past. Once Dellen Millard was, was uh, arrested for Tim Bosma's murder, you know, police pulled it all stops uh, to, to get to the bottom of it. I mean, this was the highest profile case Hamilton police have had in generations. Um, the world was watching. The media attention was intense. So they, they went head in, um, dived into this, and started picking apart his life. You don't have to go too far before you realize that he was interviewed by the Toronto police over the apparent suicide of his father. You didn't have to go too far into saying that he was a, named as a suspect in a missing persons report with Laura Babcock, his former girlfriend. So other potential murder probes were then activated. Dylan Millard's dad had died in 2012. At the time, his death was ruled a suicide. Police didn't seem to find it suspicious that Della Millard's story was that he came home, found his father dead, shot in the eye while he slept or was in bed, and instead of calling for an ambulance, calls his mother and waits for his mother to arrive, and then they phone 911. Um, none of this seemed terribly suspicious to the police. Why do you think police didn't work a little harder on that investigation? You know, it's hard to say. From one perspective, it's always easy to be the morning after armchair quarterback. Um, and when you look at it in hindsight, there are so many red flags that you, it does boggle the mind that this was not examined in greater care and detail. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with um, Dallin Millard's presentation. Um, there are prejudices within the police force the same way as there are with the society at large. Um, this was a good family. I mean, the number of times I've heard that from police over the years, oh, they, it's a good family, as if that somehow absolves them of any responsibility or, or potential culpability. It's possible that this idea that the Millards were a good family is what allowed Dylan to escape suspicion when his former girlfriend went missing. She went missing in July 2012. The impression that was left was that um, Laura Babcock's proximity to Della Millard made his current girlfriend uh, insanely jealous and that uh, there seemed to be some pressure on, uh, on Millard to get rid of her. Now, I think the problem with the police in the Laura Babcock case was that she had, you know, lifestyle-related flags for her disappearance. She had um, been working as an escort. She, um, she had, uh, had some drug use issues. So, again, police had um, some easy outs of why this wasn't a priority investigation for them. But there was no ignoring the disappearance of Tim Bosma. The world was now watching. And once Tim's remains were found and charges were filed, 
police began to reinvestigate Babcock's disappearance and Wayne Millard's apparent suicide. All the while, Millard and Smitch were facing a first-degree murder trial. And Tim's family was there during the entire trial. What do you remember most about them and how they managed themselves during the trial? The the Bosma family and close friends were, were both the, the saddest part of sitting through the trial and also the most inspiring part, to be honest. They, they, they were incredible. Uh, a huge contingent came every single day. They clearly wanted to support Tim. They also wanted, I believe, to send a message to Millard and to Smitch that they were not being cowed into silence. I think they wanted to send a message to the court as well and the public that, that, that Tim was very much loved and very much missed. But they had to sit through some absolutely excruciating testimony. Um, like what? Oh, well, I mean, having the forensic investigator uh, on the stand talking about the radius of bones and the charring of the bones and how much of the, the, the weight of the remains that, uh, that were recovered from, from the incinerator um, was just excruciating for, for, for me and for everyone in the courtroom, but imagine it for, for his wife and his, his mother and father and, and friends. You know, once in a blue moon, um, one of the family members, uh, the mother particularly, would have to sort of get up and just leave. They just couldn't take it anymore. But they were there um, every day. And, um, but they also demonstrated this tr tremendous resilience. Um, while they're waiting for a jury verdict, um, they, they, never, they never forgot that life was something worth celebrating. So sometimes, like when they were waiting for a jury to, uh, to deliberate, they were outside. The, the, the courthouse in Hamilton sort of spills out the back door into this sort of, um, park-like spot there's some sort of fountains and trees and and in the summertime there was a, a large chess set you know a, a sort of almost you know human-sized chess pieces kind of thing and and they were they were playing with these or were they checkers I you know but they were out enjoying the summer life and I, I got email and, and contact from readers and stuff sort of saying don't you find it odd that the family is you know smiling and laughing and and I'm like, no, you know, if anyone has learned the value of life, it's this family. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about that experience as you as a reporter covering this. Because, you know, as reporters, we're really, it's drilled into our heads that we just cover what's happening. But I feel like there was something bigger going on with you, too, watching the way that this family was managing it all. Yeah, you know, I mean, for starters, it was a 16-week trial. So, I mean, I mean, I spent more time with them than my own family and friends. Um, they were often ahead of me or behind me in the lineup to get coffee and the breaks. And sometimes we wanted to interview them and sometimes we wanted to speak with them and sometimes we acknowledged that they should be left alone. There was, um, yeah, a, 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 a strange um, distanced but um, you know, undeniable sort of psychosocial relationship that was was built with all the uh, with all the participants including you know the the, the lawyers and the defense uh the defense lawyers and the pr crown prosecutors and you know and some of the witnesses and you know there's like with any sort of high profile trial you, you get this this band of people that are um 
you know, sort of court junkies or or people that were just sort of attracted to this case who would come and show up, day, you know, day after day um, for for much of the trial as well. And you, you sort of learn, you know, that we often sort of say who's who in the zoo. And um, you know, when someone new appeared, it would be like, uh, you know, could 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 that be Della Millard's mother? Uh, who, you know, who's that woman there? Um, you know, who's that guy over there? Um, and it became, yeah, that, that sort of a strange little insular culture for week after week. In 2017, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were found guilty of Laura Babcock's murder. A year later, Dellen was convicted of killing his father, too. Both men are now serving multiple life sentences. Three huge trials. I mean, th- th- he wasn't tried for all three of these murders together. Each and every one was a separate trial. Um, and so we go through the process again. Um, Laura Babcock's murder with, with with her family, you know, also amazing people, and, and 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 you know you see them going through so much. Each and every time, we're confronted with the humanity of what's left behind after a violent crime, and that's not something always. A crime reporter is so immersed with for so long. You know, the way our media works is very often we have someone who covers a murder and then we have another reporter who covers the trials. We have a court reporter and we have a crime reporter. Uh, The way I like to work is sort of more holistically. If I'm covering the murder, I also want to cover the trial and then maybe a parole hearing down the road or maybe the death of that offender even eventually down the road. I'm at an agent stage now where I I, I try and approach things in a more holistic way and, and that sort of immersed me in, in, in the lives of the victims and the lives of the offenders. But that actually led you to following this case past their convictions. They're in prison, and you actually get a chance to interview Millard in jail, right? I did. It was actually in the um, during the midst of his second trial. So I started interviewing Dallin Millard uh, during his trial for the murder of Laura Babcock. So I, I spent my Saturdays in jail with a serial killer when I could have been at home watching soccer. <laughs> but tell me about that. I mean, that must have been something else. I thought a lot about it before even going in. Is there value in listening to the words of a killer? Um, and I decided there were um, reasons to do that. Uh, at the time, he was still facing other murder charges. We hadn't been convicted yet. He, he was acting as his own lawyer in the case. So there was, it's almost like I was interviewing a lawyer in the case to a certain degree. Um, and there was still so many unanswered questions. Like despite his conviction for murdering Tim Bosma, the conviction, in fact, of both Dallin Millard and Mark Smitch, it was never established who killed Tim Bosma. It, it wasn't required for the case. The way the law works, as long as the jury was convinced that they were both in on it together and one of them killed him, they're both guilty of first-degree murder. But we don't know who shot Tim Bosma. Uh, Mark Smith took the stand and he said, Dellen Millard killed him. He said that, uh, you know, this very convenient story. I was in the car behind them. I wasn't even in the truck with them at the time. You know, the, the media didn't buy it. I don't buy it. Dellen Millard's defense was almost the opposite. He said that he was driving, that Dellen Millard was driving. Tim Bosma was in the front seat and Mark Smith was, as he told me, like 30 stories higher than a kite at the time. And during this, Mark Smith accidentally shot Tim Bosma. And then, and then Dellen's version, he told me in the jailhouse interviews, was that, that he then felt an obligation to help Mark. Mark was his little brother. So that only as a, as a, as a means to help Mark Smith, he then 
miraculously had an incinerator that would conveniently take the body and destroy it, and, and, and he would take the truck to his warehouse, and he would wash it out, and he'd put it in his trailer and hide it at his mom's, and this he only did this to help Mark Smith, he tells me. Be that as it may, all of this helped me decide that this was a worthwhile endeavor to interview. So what was it like being in the room with him? So it was, it was quite unusual. I'd spent a lot of time with him, but in the court, right? So he, he dressed in a suit jacket. He was clean. He was neat. When he arrived for a jail interview, of course, he, he's, he's in prison orange. He's being led in by guards. So then I'm locked in a small concrete interview room with him. We're seated at a heavy metal uh, picnic table, essence, uh, bolted to the floor. He's already been convicted of murder at that point. He's about to be convicted of two more. Uh, and he's a big guy. Uh, I- I'm not a small guy, but he towers over me. He's tall. He works out, especially in prison. He's had a lot of time in prison. And uh, the guard says, there's a, there's, a, there's a button there on the wall. Uh, if you're ready to go or if you need us, you can push that button. So I made sure I sat near that button. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't need it. You know, we were fine. We got along. But at the end, I was ready to go, and I pushed the button. Now, I, I, I kind of expected that the, the you know, guards would come crashing through, but nothing happened. And I push it again. Nothing happens. You know, we're making small talk. And this starts to get a little awkward. Um, and, uh, you know, it was the only time when um, he looked dangerous to me. So I'm, we're trying to make awkward small talk. I'm anxious to go. I'm getting a little concerned that no one's responding to me pushing this button. Um, and, uh, and then I make a quip. I say, oh great, I'm locked in a room with a, with a serial killer or a convicted killer. I can't remember which. Um, and, uh, and that's when he just, he just, it hit him like a bolt. It was almost as if he was surprised to think that I didn't think he was innocent. He jolted, and, and then he gives me this slow sort of side eye and a glare. And I sort of say, hey, you convicted of murder. Get used to it. You're a killer. And he just goes, I'll get my appeal. And he sort of clenched his fists. Jeez, that gave me chills just hearing that. It was just—it was weird. It was a very weird moment. And then, and then, thankfully, soon after, I could see the guards start to—you know—someone came in to open the door for me and let me let me out. But, but until that moment, he was—he was very polite. I mean, he was—he was putting on a show. He knew it was important that I like him uh, or uh, believed him. He was cordial. He was polite. Um, he answered most of my questions, uh, you know, quickly. He has this unflagging enthusiasm. Um, you know, uh, he, he, we often get into this sort of sense, you know, if he wasn't a killer, he dot, dot, dot. Um, but it did have that sense that if he wasn't a killer, he might've been a great politician. Um, he was very superficially convincing in that his delivery is strong. His delivery is confident. He emphasizes crucial words and repeats them. Uh, he drums in this message through repetition and assurance, and then all of it is wrapped up in a conspiracy. The police 
were out to get him because he wasn't a sheep. That he, you know, that when he helped Mark Smitch get rid of Tim Bosma's body, instead of calling the police for help, that was an insult to the police. And, and it became this vast conspiracy to keep Dellen Millard down. And this, this formed a, an important part of what he wanted to tell me uh, inside Toronto East Detention Centre. So it's been about five years since you probably put this case in your rear view mirror and a lot of years of covering it. Um, I'm just wondering, has has the experience of covering this these murders changed the way you do your job or think about journalism in any way? How the story of Dellen Millard ends is a valuable reminder when you cover a missing person story at the start. A missing person in one city isn't always a national story. I worked for a national newspaper. It was easy to ignore that story um, at the start. And all over this country, there are missing people. And sometimes it's easy to ignore them. But you never know which person is missing, which one has has accidentally fallen, which ones have committed suicide, which ones are going to return home. And which ones fall prey to a serial killer in a most spectacular way imaginable. So journalistically speaking, and also as a human being, it is a tremendous reminder of the fragility of our existence and the fragility of, 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 our, of, of our lives. And as we go about our daily lives and daily living with our family and, and doing normal things, you just never know what darkness is lurking. Now, whereas that may sound dreadfully grim, it's not about living in fear, I suppose. I think it's more a case of, 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 of embracing life. Um, and I think that's what the, the Bosma family and the Babcock family have, have, have learned to do. And while they'll never put this behind them, and this will mark them to their dying day, um, I do think that they've finding ways to overcome it. And, uh, and, and I think those are valuable, valuable lessons uh, that everyone can learn from this. This episode of True Crime Byline was produced by Mitchell Stewart and me, Kathleen Goldhar, with additional writing by our associate producer, Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Graphics and artwork design by Bryce Hall. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Special thanks to Rob Roberts, the editor-in-chief of the National Post, and Lucinda Choden, the senior vice president of editorial for Post Media. 